as we typically do, we have the opportunity on the Sunday we remember our Lord in the table that he has designed for his people to do in remembrance of him. We have an occasion to have a meditation in God's word. And today I'd like us to think a little bit, maybe a little differently than usual. You notice there isn't an insert in your bulletin, place to take some notes. I don't know if you were following along or thinking about the pattern of hymns and scriptures that we were reading, but my purpose today is first um, to somewhat summarize and reinforce what we have been studying together. We did a mini-series, Normal Christian Living. It was taken from Ephesians chapter 5. And in that, we were reminded that normal Christian living is supernatural. There aren't steps, programs that you can follow in order to mature in Christ. It is the reality of the Spirit of God at work within God's people. Paul, when he wrote to the Ephesians, told them not to be drunk with wine because that's dissipation, but be filled with with the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit, having his influence dominate the individual. And in the same way, when he wrote to the Corinthians, he reminded them that there was liberty for the child of God in the Spirit of God. And that Spirit is changing God's people into the image and the glory of the Lord from one level of glory into the other. And just as we were studying together, a reminder that the focus in our lives must not be on us and what it is that we need to do, but the focus in our lives needs to be, be thou my vision, a focus on Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of faith, and a realization that the just shall live by faith, depending on God to do for them what they can't do for themselves. And that the Spirit of God is the one that is controlling them. And as we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, 18 and following, there are three characteristics that will be manifested in those who are dominated by, filled with, controlled by the Spirit of God. The first is that these are individuals who will be joyful individuals. They will be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with their hearts to the Lord. In other words, a genuine cheerfulness. Now, that shouldn't surprise us. You know, if you think about even statements that are made concerning God's people and how they're manifested in the world. I can go to Westminster's Shorter Catechism. And the first question that's asked is, what is the chief end of man? In other words, what's your purpose for existing? Why are you here on this world? And the answer is, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The author C.S. Lewis said... It is a Christian duty, as you know, 
for everyone to be as happy as he can be. If I go to the scripture, Paul said to the Philippians, 4-4, right? Rejoice in the Lord when? Always, characteristic. And again, I say, rejoice. When I look at what Paul told the Thessalonians, recorded for us in 1 Thessalonians 5, rejoice always, praying without ceasing. And so those who are controlled by the Spirit of God are individuals who have a genuine, cheerful disposition. It is the outworking of the Spirit's influence in the lives of God's people. And it shouldn't surprise us because if the Spirit is making us more Christ-like, if he is changing us from glory unto glory into the image of the Lord, in God's presence is the fullness of what? Joy. And God's people may go through times of difficulty, but the reality is day by day and with each passing moment, strength they will find to meet their trials here. An understanding that God has designed the path that we take. And for his people, it is not a flowery path of ease. But the reality that this world is not a friend of grace. There are difficulties that God's people face. And there is no trial, no temptation that overtakes any one of God's people that's not common to man. But God is the one who remains faithful. And the encouragement that God's people have, even when they have great affliction, is that this is no accident. This is not God being mean. This is the reality of God working everything together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Therefore, God's people are not only people who can be cheerful, God's people are thankful. Now thank we all our God. We can thank him for the benefits and the blessings that we enjoy. For what is it that we have that we have not received? Do you understand that we are the creatures and he is the creator? And all things are under his control. And as it says in the Psalms, God is the one who opens his hand and satisfies the desire of every living thing. He is the one that faithfully cares for everything he has made. And he does so in a wise way to remind his people that this world is not our home. And so Paul can say, I am even thankful for my weaknesses. Because when I am weak, that's when I'm really strong. Because Christ is manifested in me. Or like he told the Romans, we not only rejoice in our blessings, but also in our tribulations. And there is a thankfulness that God loves us enough that he does not leave us in our sins, but he is conforming us more and more to the image of Christ. As Paul wrote to the Colossians, you'll notice that repeatedly he told them of the importance of thankfulness. He said in verse 15 of Colossians 3, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you indeed were called in one body and be thankful. And he underscores that again in verse 16 when he says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you 
with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your heart to God. That thankfulness may be expressed through tears, but the reality of knowing God is the one who has set his eternal love upon me and will only bring in my life that which is pleasing to him. And obviously, God's people can be especially thankful for the greatest of all gifts, the gift of his son, Jesus Christ, and the salvation that we have in him. Oh, now thank we all our God with hearts and hands and voices. Such wonderful things he has done in this, our heart rejoices. God's people have a cheerful disposition. God's people are characterized by a genuine thankfulness because of the recognition that regardless of my status in life, when someone says, how are you doing? It is always better than I deserve. Thankfulness to God. And it is a realization that as we are in this life, that God calls his people away from a focus on the things of this world to the eternal. Jesus made it very clear when he said in the um, Sermon on the Mount, don't lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. And you know why that's important? Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. In the same way, John made it very clear as he stated in 1 John, do not love the world. And that word love is not don't have affections for the world. It's agape. Don't make the temporal, the things of this world, your top priority. Do not love. Do not make the determination that this world and all that it offers is what I'm living for. Because where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be also. And John said, the reason you're not to do it is if anyone loves, agape is the world, the reality is... The love of God is not in him. For all that is in the world, and what does it consist of? What is this temporal life? Is, what, of what is it composed? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life. We're told every day you can't be happy unless you have. We're constantly bombarded with the fact that this is what I must have in order to be fulfilled in life. And no different than children on Christmas Day who either that day or shortly after Christmas Day itself are very tired of the toys that they've received. So it is for adult children who have put all of their hope in the tinsel and the things of this world thinking if I just have a great home, if I just have lots of money, if I can just travel this world, if I can just whatever... Even to say something like, as long as I have my health. Paul made it very clear when he wrote to the Corinthians 
everything that's in this world that is seen is temporal. And temporal things don't last. What remains are the things that aren't seen. And that's why when the writer of Hebrews reminded them, as is recorded for us in Hebrews 12, he said, the one who shook the earth previously has now promised saying, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heaven. And this expression once more denotes the removing of those things which can be seen as created things in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable sacrifice with reverence and awe. Lord, be thou my vision. It's not the things that seem that have value that remain. It's the things that we cannot see. And my responsibility in this world as Paul reminded the Ephesians, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Humbly seeking to serve Christ and to be a blessing in his hand for the benefit of others. When Paul wrote to the Philippians and he talked about the difficulties in this world, he reminded them that my ultimate purpose in life, Philippians 1, 21, what many have said is Paul's telegram, just 10 words for me to live Christ, to die gain. The life focused on him is a focus on the eternal. And knowing that I might face difficulties in this life, I might get blindsided by things. He concluded that letter to the Philippians by telling them, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Normal Christian living. It's supernatural. It's your eyes focused on the Lord. It's living it by faith, depending upon God to do in you and through you what you can't do for yourself. It's a recognition that as the Spirit of God controls me, more of Christ will be seen, and in my life there will be a manifestation of genuine cheerfulness, of true gratitude, and of humble submission to the Lord, here am I, use me. Not only did I want to use this opportunity to recount what we have studied together in um, Ephesians 5, verses 18 through 21, but it's also an introduction as we return to a book that we were studying a while ago, but had not yet finished. Because what we've just seen as normal Christian living is exactly what Solomon tells us in the book of Ecclesiastes. You know what it is to put all of your hope in the things of this world? Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And who's the one that's in charge of what comes in your life? God is the sovereign one. There's a day to be born and a time to die. There's a time for sorrow. There's a time for joy, etc., And God has fixed everything according to his purpose. And so what does Solomon say we are to do? We're to be happy with what God's given us. 
and we're to recognize that what's really most important, he'll start telling Ewan and Hillary and other children, remember your creator when? In the days of your youth. Be sure God is the focus of your life. It doesn't matter whether you're 5, 15, 30, 55, 85. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's the recognition that our lives would be devoted to him. And so this summary of what we have seen is also to rekindle the things that we were studying in Ecclesiastes as we get ready to go back to that study. And whether we're in Ecclesiastes or what we've learned in um, Ephesians 5, for all of us as God's people to realize that our love and our devotion needs to be on the Lord rather than the priority of the things of this world. To use the words of the missionary Jim Elliott, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. We're coming to the Lord's table. What a blessing it is to come to his table. What a privilege it is to be one of his children. And this table is designed for us that we might remember him who by that ultimate sacrifice made us acceptable to God because our salvation is not based on works of righteousness that we might do, but solely according to his mercy that he saves us. And in Christ Jesus, the one who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And no wonder that all of the New Testament keeps declaring to us that the focus of our lives needs to be on Christ Jesus, our Lord. Christ said we're to do this in remembrance of him. And I was thinking some of how it is I'd like us to think of him and remember him today. We can always talk about his grace, right? Grace was manifested through Jesus Christ and even grace upon grace. You're saved by grace through faith and that's not of yourselves. We can speak of his tender mercy and pity that he had on individuals and on any one of us who have been touched with his salvation. Can we even begin to imagine his sacrifice? That he died in the place of others so that all who have their trust in him will never experience the wrath of God. We can talk about the fact that he is a friend of sinners and for which that I am very grateful. Without him befriending us, we'd have no hope. But what I'd really like us to focus on today is an aspect of his being that we probably don't talk enough about. Basically, as human beings, we're very selfish. Do you know what that means? I'm looking out for me. Everything revolves around me. 
I'm the most important. Your purpose is to serve and please me. Webster says, selfishness uh, or selfish is caring only and chiefly for oneself, regarding one's own interests or advantage, chiefly or solely, proceeding from a love of self. The opposite of that we think of as unselfish, right? (laughs) Webster doesn't help much when he gives the beginning of his definition. What does unselfish mean? Not selfish. But he says, not unduly attached to one's own interests or welfare, instead, generous. Generous. Obviously, Christ was unselfish. But I think Christ was even more than that. And still is. And that is, he is selfless. This do in remembrance of me. What obligation was upon the Godhead to provide salvation? None. What obligation was upon the Son to take to himself human form for the whole purpose of giving himself as an offering for sin? None. He was unselfish. He, excuse me, he was selfless which Webster says is having no regard or thought for oneself. Having no regard or thought for oneself. If I think of Christ as being selfless, just ponder these thoughts. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Why are you here? He willed your existence. He formed your being. That's why when I go to the book of Revelation, it says God is worthy to receive glory because all things were created by your will and good pleasure and have their being and existence. God is to receive glory because his beings were created by him and are utterly dependent upon him. And this one who brought all into existence, it says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Glory as the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. When Paul describes this creator being who came into the realm of the creation He reminded the Philippians they were to have this attitude in themselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, that although he existed in the form of God, that's the very essence of who he is. He existed in the, he didn't regard equality with God, the thing that he kept clinging to, that he grasped. I have to be honored as God. But he emptied himself set aside his divine prerogatives. 
He took the form of a bond servant and being made in the likeness of man and found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Selfless. When we remember him today, there'd be no Lord's table. There'd be no human beings in glory if he didn't willingly set aside his prerogatives, if he didn't veil his majestic glory, but he wasn't looking out for himself. He is the example of how you and I are to think. Don't look out for your own interests, but instead the interests of others. Have the attitude in you that was in Christ Jesus. Instead of being concerned about self, this table reminds us he was concerned about the well-being of his sheep, of his people. When Paul wrote to the Romans, he lets us know that the attitude of the son is also the attitude of the father. For he says, he that did not spare his own son but delivered us up us but delivered him up for us all how will he not also with him freely give us all things have you really contemplated that what christ rightfully has as the supreme king of glory he is willingly sharing with all of his children. This is my inheritance. I laid down my life. Therefore, the nations have been given to me. I will rule over them. I'll have the preeminence beyond all things. The selflessness of my Savior continues even to this day and will be manifested in glory. When Christ spoke to the churches and reminded them that the overcomers will be blessed by him, he said to the overcomer, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also came and sat down on my father's throne and that with him I will give him authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. As vessels of potter are broken in pieces, just as I have received authority from my Father. Isn't that amazing? The Creator humbled Himself, clothed in human form, for the purpose of dying on behalf of others, didn't keep clutching His divine prerogatives. And right now, all that rightfully belongs to Him. He selflessly shares with every one of his children. What a bright hope and future God's people have. And you know why we have it? Because Christ is selfless. He's concerned about the well-being of his sheep. And there was no limit he put on what he would do to provide for them eternal life amazingly having a sheep share in all of what rightfully belongs to him.
Hallelujah. What a Savior. This do, he said, in remembrance of him. With the bread, we remember his incarnation for the whole purpose that his body was given as a sacrifice on our behalf. This do, he said, in remembrance of me. And when we partake of the cup, we remember that through his work, he inaugurated the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And therefore, as one of God's children, God will never count my sins against me. He will never punish me for the things I have done wrong and the punishment I deserve because he poured it out on his son. And as if that is not enough, he has made us joint heirs with Christ so that all that rightfully belongs to him will be shared by all of God's people. Father, we thank you for such a wonderful Savior. We thank you, Father, for just the manifestation of your kindness, of your selflessness. Father, of the way you have worked for the well-being and the good of your people. We just thank you for our Savior. And we acknowledge that truly only he is worthy of all praise and honor and glory, not only now but forevermore. Amen.